Well, here we are on the second Sunday of July. Uh, over the last few years, I've been doing a variety of psalms in the weeks of July and August when I'm here. And so I thought I would carry on with that, the seasons of our lives, the psalms. Speaking to the seasons of our lives, we all, you know, or a lot of us use the psalms devotionally. Perhaps in the morning or at night, you have a chance to reflect on God's word, and often it's the Psalms, the Psalter, that we turn to. So they are a great devotional aid. I encourage you to be in them. And this Psalm that we're looking at today, I'm calling a new beginning, Psalm 40. And although it's a great Psalm, it's a little bit longer, so I haven't used it in other years, but I want to use it today. Uh, 17 verses 1 through 17 divides into two parts but it's a wonderful psalm that speaks about new beginnings and God's presence with us so I trust that it will be helpful for you in your own walk with the Lord if you have a Bible to follow along that would be helpful I'm using the NRSV but if not uh, as you go through your week maybe you can read the psalm Reflect on a few of the ideas we've talked about, maybe some notes you've taken, how we can speak to your life. The God of surprise, the God of abundant verdancy that we see in the summer season, certainly here in Ontario, July and August, things turn very green and it's a verdant season. So for this season of your life, whatever that might be, young or old, in between your life, right now, how does Psalm 40 speak to you? So the first unit, verses 1 through 10, divides into four points, and we'll just kind of go through. It begins with this text, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the desolate pit out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So looking at the psalm, I'm calling this waiting rewarded. As we wait on the Lord, it will pay dividend for us. And so we note in the first verse, uh, it it really refers to God's intervention in our life, your life, God's rescue. So it starts with, I waited patiently. I waited patiently for the Lord. The, the, The English doesn't really capture it so much. It's, I waited patiently, patiently. It would be like if we had it repeated. It's an intense waiting. I really waited on the Lord. And we are waiting for God to hear our cry. And it's a recognition that God's timing is not always our timing, and frequently it is not. We want things to happen often much sooner than they do. And then we can say, well, God, where are you? But the psalmist captures that kind of waiting by the double statement, I waited patiently, patiently. It's an intense waiting, recognizing that God works in his time, or we might even say God is a slow God in that sense. He takes his time 
for his purposes to be worked out, which we often are too impatient to really wait upon. So whatever you're going through right now, I waited patiently, patiently. God's timing is not always our timing. But then we see that he does actually act and work, and he lifts the psalmist up from a deep pit, a desolate pit, a miry bog. And the image here is similar to what the prophet Jeremiah experienced in Jeremiah 38, where, you remember, the, the, the king and the leaders are really getting irritated with Jeremiah for his prophecies that are speaking against the, the country right there, and they need to really wake up and pay attention, and they get so frustrated with him, they just throw him into a well. Just pop him in. And they're just going to leave him there. And so you can imagine, he's, and it tells us in, in Jeremiah 38, if you read it, he sinks down into the mud. Not a whole lot of water in that well, and he's down into the mud. Who knows how far? Knee high, waist high, chest high, who knows? And he's waiting and waiting, and finally they relent, the king relents, and they have him pulled out. And even that experience of being pulled out of the well when you're sunk down into the mug, mud would not have been much fun. But finally he's released, and that, that's the image that the psalmist is using. David's using of his own experience. It's, it's like I'm way down in the mud, and I, needed, I need your work. I need your action. And then ultimately God does work, and there's this surprising action, and finally he's pulled out. So that's how the psalm begins, and it, and it begins in a dramatic way, verses 1 through 3. And right now, I don't know, you might, be feel, you might feel like you're down in the bottom of a well. You're stuck. Talked about that recently in my blog. Oftentimes we feel stuck. And we want to be unstuck. The comment is made that, well, being stuck is the first step in becoming unstuck. So maybe you're stuck right now in the bottom of a well of whatever nature. And we need to look up, only one way to look in a well, to look up, catch the light, and depend on the Lord. So that's where the psalmist begins. And then he carries on, happy are those, note, this is a beatitude, blessed are those, happy are those who make the Lord their trust, who do not turn to the proud, to those who go astray after false gods. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. Were I to proclaim and tell of them, they would be more than could be counted. So you see how that verse 4 begins. Happy are those who make the Lord their trust. The end of verse 3 said, Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So there's a connection between the David being raised out of this miry bog and then saying, happy are those. Blessed are those. When God works in our midst, may we indeed give him praise and then may we place our trust in him. The God who acts on our behalf, let's not forget that and just go back to the old routines that we have, quickly forgetting, but may we trust. And it says at the end there, verse 4, to those who go astray after false gods. Well, in our day and age, money is a false god. 
We looked at that a couple of weeks ago and, and when we reflected on the rich young ruler and how we can place our trust in money and it really becomes a God to us. We don't say money is our God, but we act as if it is. It becomes the number one priority. And so whether David is thinking of that here, he's thinking of going astray after false gods. So whatever that might be for you, your ten- tendency, the temptation to trust and go some other direction. But the psalmist says, David says, happy are those who make the Lord their trust and who really mean that and keep their priorities on him. And then it says, you have multiplied your wondrous deeds towards us. Were I to to proclaim and tell of them, that is your thoughts. So your wondrous deeds are past. I think of how you've acted on for me in my life. You've drawn me out of the bog. And then your thoughts towards us is future. So it's past and future. David says to trust in the Lord our God who has acted for us in the past and will continue to act for us in the future. Not trusting in other things, whatever it might be, money, the state, power, whatever, but ultimately trusting in God And knowing that he is there for you and for me, that his thoughts are toward us. So that we don't fall back into the old world of fatigue. That we don't fall back into simply a conventional religion, but trust in God's new work for our lives. There's always a tendency for religious people to fall back into whatever their ritual is, whatever their routines are whatever their past experience has been. So we just go back to that. And the invitation is to go beyond that, to recognize that God has new thoughts for us, new new desires for us, and to lean on him and trust in him, not just going back to the old world, but recognizing God's new presence for us and his love for us. Next unit, sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, here I am in the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O my God, your law is within my heart. So as a result of this, there is dedication. And I love the statement in verse 8. Or verse 6, sorry, but you have given me an open ear. He says it's not about sacrifice, even back in their day when they had the temple, making sacrifices. God says it's not about sacrifice, it's not about ritual, it's not about routine, but an open ear. And an open ear means a commitment to listen for God's voice, to really listen amidst the noisy world, to listen for God's voice. His Spirit speaking to us in whatever way, to our conscience, to our mind, to our heart. And so we can ask ourselves, do I have an open ear towards God? Because that's what God wants. He wants a living relationship where there's an ongoing conversation, an open ear. Jesus often says, those who have ears, let them hear. He says that over and over. And what he's getting at is the same idea. Have an open ear. Jesus had an open ear to Abba, his father. 
So we as creatures, do we have an open ear to our creator? It's a lovely phrase, to dedicate ourselves, and then that way we go deeper in our relationship, to have an open ear. And then it peaks in the statement, verse 7, here I am, which reminds us of Isaiah's statement in Isaiah 6, 8, when God says, whom will I send? And Isaiah stands up, the young guy, and says, here, here am I, send me. And here we see the psalmist saying, here I am, a similar intention. And then the beauty of this unit, as we know our scriptures, is that this unit here, verses 6 to 8 of Psalm 40, They are taken and placed in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verses 5 to 7. This whole unit is brought over, and there it's speaking of Jesus. Jesus, who says, I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. Jesus, who has an open ear. Jesus, who works for us. And then in Hebrews 10.10, we have this statement, and it is by God's will that we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Which means that Jesus has paid the price for our sin. That whatever mess-ups we've done, and we're going to hear about that in the psalm, whatever they are, whatever the errors, wherever we screwed up, God has worked for us in Jesus. As he bears the load of our sin. Now, how that goes down, you know, how all the nuances of the atonement are worked out, we're not told here. But in Hebrews, it says that Jesus has indeed worked and paid the price ultimately for our sin, your sin and my sin, your errors and my errors, and not just yours or mine, but for the whole planet. For all of that ego, for all of that resistance to God, Jesus has worked for us. So this unit from Isaiah 40, Hebrews 10 picks it up and says it all ultimately points to Jesus. So that is an amazing statement. And then as a result of that, we have a proclamation. I, I, I hear, I've dedicated myself to you, then verses 9 and 10. I have told the glad news of deliverance. In the great congregation, that means in my church family, my community of faith, see, I have not restrained my lips as you know, O Lord. I have not hidden your saving help within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your steadfast love and your faithfulness from the great congregation. The psalmist has said, I stand up and I give my testimony for everybody to hear. This is what God has done for me. I've dedicated my life to him, and now I'm proclaiming it to others. So the psalmist says, and so we are invited to say. You know, if if God has done something for us, John Newton, who, you know, wrote Amazing Grace, who had been a slave trader, ultimately experiences salvation in Christ, and then he dedicates his life to help others. He saw himself as being in a pit, God has brought me up and out of that, and from now on I want to make a difference for him. That's, that's this sense of dedication and proclamation, and God wants it from us too. So are we grateful? Are we thankful for what he has done? Hannah says the same sort of thing. Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 1, 24, 
where she praises God for the birth of her son Samuel, and she dedicates him to the Lord's work in the temple. This is proclamation. This is dedication. This is her saying, thank you for what God has done in her life. It it reads in 1 Samuel 1, 28, Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is given to the Lord. And she left him there for the Lord, meaning she leaves Samuel in the temple for his service. And he goes on, of course, to be this great prophet of God. So Psalm 41 to 10, this first half, recognizes God's work in the psalmist's life and he spells it out and then he gives thanks for what God has done. So that's the first part. But then there's an interesting twist because he now in the second half, shorter, 11 to 17, the psalmist restates it but he digs deeper down into what is the rescue, what is needed, what is my experience deep down in the bog in the well. So it reads 11 and 12, Do not, O Lord, withhold your mercy from me. Let your steadfast love and your faithfulness keep me safe forever. Then listen. For evils have encompassed me without number. My iniquities have overtaken me until I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head, and my heart fails me. He's saying, I'm down in the bog, but why am I down in the bog? Not not like Jeremiah here. David is saying he's down in the bog in this deep well because of his own mess-ups, because of his own sin, because of his own errors, how he has gone astray, whatever that might be. My iniquities have overtaken me. And, and, and that can be our experience. That we can find ourselves in trouble and difficulty and we have no one else to blame. We always want to blame somebody. But sometimes we just can't find anybody to blame. It's you, it's me. We have done what we don't really want to do, but we've done it. And that is where David calls out and says, my iniquities have overtaken me. And you and I have done the same somewhere in our lives. And in fact, we tend to repeat it throughout our lives in various ways. Not necessarily the same thing, but other ways. We trip up our problems, our failings. And in that, we cry out to God. So that's the predicament that the psalmist is saying at the bottom of that well. I am stuck and I need you to get me unstuck. If you're ever in the mud, I don't know if you ever experienced that, you're out hiking and you get in the mud, if it's deep down, it's really hard to move. You can, you may not even be able to move your feet out. You're stuck. See pictures sometimes of horses that get stuck in the mud and, and if someone doesn't come along to help the horse get out, they're, they're, they're gone. They're stuck. So the psalmist is saying, hey, I'm down here and I need you, Lord, to get me unstuck. Meanwhile, verses 13 to 15, other people are saying, hey, hey, look, so-and-so is messed up, so-and-so is screwed up. Our world loves to judge others. And unfortunately, even the Christian church often wants to judge others. Some leader has fallen astray in whatever way that might be, Whatever way. And people say, aha, look, aha, I knew that would happen. 
We're quick to judge. Call the person a sinner, a fraud, a hypocrite. The world loves to judge. Unfortunately, we are often in the same spot. That is what the psalmist is writing about, 13 to 15. They say, aha, aha. But God is not like that. God does not say that. God is not saying, oh man, I knew you were going to mess up. I I knew, and I'm just going to let you roll around in that. Talk to me in five years. You know, it's not what God does. Here, verses 16 and 17, but may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who love your salvation say continually, great is the Lord. The end, as for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. I mess up, but you take thought for me. Verse 17 at the end. You take thought for me. It's beautiful. God's concern for you. Seven and a half billion people on the planet, and God sees you as a you. We are not just statistics. We are not just numbers. We are unique individuals created by God, and God sees you, God sees me, and loves us. And that's a great reminder that God is there for us personally. There for you personally. Wherever that might be. You might be in a hospital room right now. You may be in a hospital bed. You may be thinking that everybody has forgotten me. God has not forgotten you. He looks at your heart, my heart, your life, my life, me, little old me, little old you. And so as we end then, we hear these two bits. God rescuing us. And then the psalmist's second half restates the whole thing with more details and we're told again that God takes care of the individual for me. So the final thought is then, can we imagine ourselves right now, July 10, 2022, can we imagine our new beginning with God? Can we imagine our new orientation? Can we imagine and see that God's salvation is there for you and for me? Ultimately, we are there in his hands, under his hands. Kidner writes, and I quote, To compare what I am with what thou art is a steadying thing. I like that. It's just an understatement of God steadies our little boat. God steadies your boat. He stabilizes us. And he enables us to go forward in new strength and in new beginnings. For us individually and also for us as a community of faith, he stabilizes. Here we are coming out of COVID. He stabilizes, energizes us, and enables us to go forward in new strength. Maybe that, may that be your hope, may that be your reality, your presence, your experience of God this week. He's there for you, little old you, little old me. And he re-energizes us for his namesake and his purpose. Even as Christ has worked for you and for me as this 
psalm reminds us in Hebrews 10. And I offer these words to you this morning in Jesus' name. Amen.